Hello and welcome to Setting the Stage, Episode 6, Unas and Zayarna. Unas, why don't you start off by telling me a little bit about who you are outside of D&D? Alright, uh, I'm Unas. I am a engineering student outside of D&D. Uh, most of the time uh, I spend this with my studies, like projects and stuff. Other than that, I used to be a athlete back in the day. What sport? Uh, I used to play basketball for a while and then volleyball a little bit. Yeah, and like that's what comes on top of my head, actually. And I, I used to teach. Okay, I forget that. I used to be a teacher like a couple of years ago. I quit that job so I can pursue my education better. Mm-hmm. Uh, what type of engineering are you doing? Uh, chemical engineering, currently. Okay. And where are you located? Uh, I live in Istanbul, Turkey. Gotcha. Approximately the other side of the planet for you guys, I believe. Uh, pretty close. I think the actual opposite is Sri Lanka for me. Yeah, still pretty far. Yeah, yeah. What got you into Dungeons & Dragons? Uh, well, it was, I believe, in middle school when... I first came across, there was an MMORPG for Dungeons and Dragons. I don't exactly remember its name. I went into that and I that was when I first heard about Dungeons and Dragons. Then uh, I also was really into fantasy books back in the day, like reading one each day kind of stuff. Wow. Yeah, and uh, in the local library, there was a new book, the... Turkish translation for the Dragonlance books, to be specific. I bought those, I read those, and at the end of one of those books, it said this book's based off of the tabletop RPG Dungeons & Dragons, and I started doing research on that, and I forget about it for a while until, like, at the end of high school, when one of my friends said, hey, there's a thing called Dungeons & Dragons, you want to play? And that's how I got into that. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I got into the books the other way around by playing the game and then wanting to read them. But yeah, that's neat that it works the other way around. Yeah, yeah. I remember that MMO too. It was I think it was called just D and D online. Yeah, it might be. I I remember that. I don't remember its name. It might be D and D online. And there's Neverwinter online that I actually played a lot, which yeah sparked my interest in D and D all over again. I never played Neverwinter online, but um, yeah, it's cool. They're, like all of the, all of the D and D video games, I, I've really liked when I played them. Have you tried the um, the Pathfinder ones? Uh, no, unfortunately, I think I have one of those Pathfinder games. I don't know its exact name on top of my head. I didn't have the chance to play it yet, though. It's it's quite good. I just finished it um, about a month ago. So yeah, it is on my agenda if i uh, find the time to play video games yes there's a there's a long list of ones that i haven't played yet and i was trying to to work through it so i i managed to find the time for that one um how did you start uh, dming uh, well it was actually again in high school when my friend asked like if you want to play dnd we started doing research and we found out hey we need a dm to do that these kind of things and i just jumped hey i'm i'll do that because I don't know why. I started doing the research. I started reading the books. The first book I read was the DM's Guide for 5th edition, to be specific. And then I just started DMing, and it was like a game once a week at school during lunch break, like an hour Mm -hmm. session each. Then, uh, yeah, I've been DMing ever since. Like, it's been, what, six years, I believe. Cool. So you hadn't really played before you were DMing? Like you, you yeah. started DMing before you were did anything as a player? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the first experience I had with DMD was uh, DMing. Okay, that's um, that's fairly unusual now. Usually, people get into it through um, being a player and someone else's DMing. Yeah, yeah. But we we had nobody that actually knew how to play Dungeons and Dragons around us, so one of us had to do that, and I took up the mantle. Okay. Uh, do you want to start talking about your campaign world? Like, what's the name and the a physical description of the world? 
Uh, well, the world is called Zierna, Z-I-E-R-N-A. It's uh, mostly a mostly consists of three major continents and a couple islands and island groups. The game, the games I ran, it's I'm currently running my second campaign in this setting. Uh, usually take place in the north. Uh, that northwestern continent that's the most developed one at the moment other than that they my players actually did visit the other ones occasionally so there's multiple continents um but they're they're mostly on one what's that one continent like uh the continent is called alain a l e i n and it's actually divided into two through like a series of mountains the eastern side is the mostly inhabited one. It's, you know, on the north is more cold and pole, North Pole-ish uh, place. And as you go south, it becomes more grasslands and forest lands, more like middle European kind of geography there. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the western side after the mountains is a currently at least a wasteland that my players did have the chance to go through on occasion. So would you say it's more like Europe or more like um, Northern Asia? Uh, the eastern the eastern side is more like Europe, I would say. More greener, like forests, uh, birch and pine, mostly. And the western side is actually a little inspired from middle east all the deserts and kind of wasteland-ish parts well there's okay. there's still life on the western side but it's really scarce and here and there let's say gotcha what's the like the culture like for the different places there is it all like unified or is it different based on the, the different places it's actually differs uh, from place to place like there are a couple, uh, I wouldn't call countries, more like city-states in the western side. Uh, one of the city-states where my players are currently in, Kelterine, it's the most mixed uh, in terms of population. You can find any kind of people in in that city, like, uh, not elves, half-elves, half-folk, dwarves, halflings, humans. Etc. Well, more exotic races you can still find there, but they're a sight to see. Let's say, like you can say you can see a minotaur every day, but there are the other cities. Like the smaller towns are more human and dwarf based and half elves. Okay. Uh, there is a there's this stereotypical uh, mountain kingdom, like under the mountain, which is mostly uh, dwarves. I think other than that, uh, the uh, eastern side is relatively mixed. Like, if you're from any race, you can find a place somewhere. It wouldn't really be problematic. The other side, however, is like a, a little bit of a problem because first off, you have to be adaptable to survive in that environment. The desert. Yeah, in the desert, there's all kinds of, you know, they're the ruins of an old civilization with monsters there's the earth elemental problem over there and there are the warring tribes so i would say i don't actually have it like written on paper what percentage of the population is i would say more hardier races fit to travel uh not spending the night in the same place twice Okay, Nom- so it's like more, nomad tribes. Yes, more nomadic. It's interesting you mentioned dwarves being a like a major population besides humans. I don't think that's that common in, a, yeah. in the campaign worlds. Uh, well, uh, currently there is a reason for that. Uh, in my current campaign, at least one of the bigger plot points is that there was some kind of an event 30-ish years ago where, you know, elementals kind of attacked to put it simply 
And uh, currently, the 75% of the world is inhabitable. And the reason why dwarves are in like a big majority here is because at before that event, the, most of the dwarves were already here. So while humans and elves and the other races lost their homes and most of their population, dwarves had nothing. They're just saying they're chilling. That's why uh, they were, even though they were a minority, they are now a majority. Gotcha. They were the unaffected portion. Yeah, they didn't get affected by the events, let's say. What was the, the event you were talking about there? Uh, well, it's... Let me pull up the timeline. I, I'm i an old-fashioned guy. I all, always take my notes and papers instead of, you know, even though I have a PC and work with a computer all the time because, you know, engineering, I still have my papers all the, all over the place. I did that when I started. I had like a, a big accordion folder that I kept all my notes in. So I like had different sections for different things. Yes, that's what I have currently. Because when I'm writing on writing on PC, I just don't feel like I'm writing anything. The paper and pen feels more involved somehow. Well, I also liked it because then when I'm like, when I actually go to a, a session, I could bring everything with me in that. So if someone asked me a question, I could like look up an answer if one existed yeah yeah or just make some something up if it doesn't exist yeah yeah and then you like i had a, a note paper section in the book so i could just pull out a piece of paper and write something down and then put it like file it away in the right place yeah, yeah. Uh, well approximately 30 to 40 years before the current campaign takes place uh there was a group of individuals that say they that call themselves the elemental archons uh, they used like artifacts from the old times and channeled the power of the elemental planes. I do have the elemental planes in my setting to cause, like, let's say, trouble. They claimed some parts of the world for themselves. Like, some for some parts they were fully conquered. Like, the continent on the south is completely under the control of the Fire Archon. Wouldn't say completely. Ninety-seven percent. There's like a three percent little spot that she doesn't have. Uh, while on the other hand, in the northern continent, Earth, uh, Archon managed to take like sixty percent of it at most. Uh, he got blocked by the mountain pass for some reason. Like there is a reason for it, but I cannot say that. Gotcha. And is the the northern one the one you're talking about? Yes, uh, Elaine. Elaine. Yes, yes, correct. Uh, there's the third continent on the west, Le Lenas, that got uh, taken over by the Air Archon. Actually, my players were there before the full takeover. There was a small city there that my players started at. And the plot point of that arc was the Air Archon trying to take over the city. And, you know, he did manage to take over. So my players had to evacuate that city now that. Now they're in uh, Alain. That's pretty cool. And I like that kind of world building where you bring in a villain like that and the players have to run. Yeah, they had to. Uh, they had to like run, get some help. One of my players had to take his parents out. That was a whole another session. I had to run a private session, one-on-one -on -one session with my player for that. That's really cool. And uh, the Wonder Archon just has the options because that's the most simple answer. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, like by land, she has the least because there's like a, a group of islands between the western and southern continents that used to be connected at some point, uh, like a shattered piece of land. She has there, like it's really small compared to other ones, but she also has the oceans. So technically she has the most land. So you mentioned the four elements um so you and the, the four planes what's can you tell me a little bit more about the rest of the cosmology for your campaign oh uh cosmology is well there's the material plane in the middle then there's the Feywild and Shadowfell, just directly next to it it's really similar to uh, forgotten realms actually then there's the four four element 
four main elemental planes around that, and the side planes between those, like the plane of ash, the plane of ice, mm. and so on and so forth. Then uh, starts the outer planes, like uh, Mount Celestia, Nine Hells, uh, Limbo, and Mechanus, and so on and so forth. Like I do have a map of those somewhere, but I I haven't used the outer planes th that much this campaign because it's mostly being focused on my players trying to uh, create a mafia organization. So I haven't been involved with outer planes that much, like a little bit okay. elemental planes, but that's it. Um, what about the gods? Oh, uh, I do have a unique system of gods for my own campaign. There's the hierarchy of Xeonian divinity. Like they're the prime prime divinity, the higher end of gods than their greater deities, like not as powerful, but widely worshipped and lesser than it goes down to pseudo deities. And then there are like beings of deific power that are not gods, like higher ancient beings, let's say, without giving that much spoilers. Okay. Uh, the divinity actually is split into three parts. There's the like, stereotypically good gods, bad gods, and the neutral ones that I call them the virtuous, the sinners, and uh, the keepers, more like, because uh, the virtues and the sinners are based on seven deadly sins and seven virtues. When I first started, I just made the system, like, there's seven good gods, there's seven bad gods, and each of them has a counterpart. Like, the most uh, basic one is Bahamut and Tiamat. They're just each other's counterparts. Right. And then there's the three, I call them the three sisters or the three keepers that are responsible of the cycle of life, like birth, life, and death. And then there's the like the lesser, I wouldn't say lesser, the greater deities that are just below the prime divinity. Like one example would be the Lady of Luck, like the goddess of luck. Then there's the uh god of thieves and mischief, and so on and so forth. Okay. That seems like there's a lot of choice there, but it still has like some defined roles so yes. that like you can you can have sort of a, a campaign mythology that builds off of those like touch pieces like yes. the diametric gods or the the trimurti that you talked about yes yes well uh my previous campaign was a little bit based on divinity like the divines and their uh bestowed gifts upon the humanity let's say my previous uh, group tried to collect collect all of them or at least find them and find a place to store them so uh, unruly hands wouldn't reach because they're a little or the top items let's say a, a race against time to find artifacts and store them before other people found it that's cool so what was the the other group or groups that were trying to find the items in that case well uh there was the of course the group that uh the, the party that tried to find it uh there was a smaller other adventurer group <clears throat> like the party was five people the other adventure group i'm talking about was three people they were higher levels. They were like experienced old adventures that, that were trying to, hey, things are not going back. Don't, things are not doing good. So we got to step up again, uh, come back from retirement. Uh, there was the aspiring archmage of a distant uh, kingdom that was trying to find the those artifacts to, you know, use for their own ends. There was the big bad evil guy, of course, trying to use it for his own uh, rituals and stuff. And there were like uh, non-affiliated uh, persons that were also, because, you know, it's power and prestige to have one of those. 
So it's kind of reminded me of the plot of Sonic, where there's all these different people that are trying to get the, the Chaos Emeralds. Well, yeah, you can kind of say that. What did the different items do? Or did they all have some sort of unified like power that um, tied them together? Or were they all just sort of like different different uh, gods had given different items? Something? Uh, they, they weren't set in stone items. They were more like concepts. Each god had they like, how to say, an approximate idea of what their item would be. I, I call them anchors, divine anchors. Uh, each god had an approximate idea of what their anchor would be. Like, for example, Bahamut's item would be based on protection and selflessness and uh, standing in the face of danger. So with each holder, the item changed its appearance and function. For example, one of the forms of Bahamut's item was a sword. One of the forms was a shield. One of the forms was a helmet. But they all had like similar-ish abilities, taking damage from others and standing in, in the front of the battle to you know take the brunt of it. Uh, the thing that they all had in common was being able to evolve. When you first uh, got the artifact, it would be like in a sleeping state. I would say dormant. Then through your actions and deeds, you would improve the item until it became, until it come, came to its uh, final state, where it would be actually, depending on how, what kind of a character you are, you would be a walking single-man army. Um, so would they just attune with anyone? Like, I feel like well, uh, the, Bahamut's yeah, shield or anchor wouldn't. Um, yeah, a tune with uh, an evil like a, a lich yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah, an evil person. Well, of course, they had like limitations. For example, again, Bahamut required you to be lawful neutral at worst, or lawful good. Like approximation, I don't use uh, alignments in my campaign, but you have to have good intentions. Let's say. On, yeah. on the other hand, the divine anchor of Loth, the Spider Queen, is you know you have to be a little. De a deviant uh, to be able to utilize that item. So uh, right. those items were looking for personality traits and intentions, more like. And like some of them also required, had class requirements. The goddess of magic required you to be a wizard, for example. All right. Yeah, of course, that makes sense. So how did your players end up using them? Uh, well, they... The first time they stumbled, they stumbled upon one of them. Uh, a henchman of the big bad evil guy was trying to, you know, experiment with one of those items, like trying to extract the essence and power from it, using it uh, like a battery. Uh, the paladin found the shield actually, which would be fitting, like a paladin. Uh, at the beginning of the campaign, the paladin was like a stereotypical uh, dad. Lawful goods, strict rules. Uh, don't put your hands out of the window while the car is driving, etc. Uh -huh. Then he became a little less lawful, still good, like because the party is a really bad influence. Uh, that's the shield was, you know, reacted to his selflessness uh, because he was always in the front taking the hits for everybody. Then there was the... Actually, the dagger. That was a dagger, right? If I remember correctly. The God, moon goddess's dagger. It was based on uh, like mobility and elusiveness because under the moonlight, you move faster for some reason, I guess. Like the uh, cloak of the night would be a better term there. It was based on mobility and being fast and being precise. The fighter got managed to get his hands on that. So, and he already had uh, the mobile feet and you know boots of mobility. So, yeah, good luck catching that man on the battlefield. Oh. Yeah, it was actually <clears throat> at some point it became a pain in my ass trying to catch him. <laughs> I had to give like sentinel to some of the monsters to be able to keep him in his place. That's pretty cool. 
and well of course all of them had like a small storyline associated with them all the items yeah yeah uh, it did, they did seem like type of item that would have that yeah, yeah. Um, like they most of them had like a small quest type to the end of them which actually one of them is still continuing to this day like second campaign uh, one of the old characters is still alive, technically. My my players do know that he's alive because, you know, uh, level 20 druids, they don't die. They're level 22? They were at that point. Oh. Okay. Uh, my old campaign took two years to complete. So I started them at level three, if I remember correctly. Not all of them. Some of them started at two. I did like a session zero for some of them. Uh -huh. uh, and they did get up to level 17 some of them some of them managed to get to 20 because like scheduling issues and whatnot we have to divide the party at some point okay yeah so uh, the storylines that i wrote for campaign one are still continuing in campaign two even though it has been seven to the 80 years since you know between campaigns right um it's the same group of players, though, for the, the two campaigns? Yes. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's the same. Uh, the Druids player is currently playing, and he's not. He's trying to not metagame, but he, I know that he wants to go to where his Druid did his quest, because the Druid's quest was to plant the World Tree, a second one, because uh, the Goddess of Nature foresaw that a second one would be necessary. And she was right. Uh, so mm -hmm. the player really wants to go and see that tree because the druid should be around still. But he's trying to not meta game about it. Because his character would have no idea what's happening. So earlier you mentioned the, the Archon showing up. And it yes. sounds like that happened in between the first and the second campaign. Yes, it The is. first one was 80 years ago and Archons was like, 20, 30 or 40 years ago. 20-ish. Let's say 25. Okay. Um, so what what happened in the meantime that allowed the Archons to to show up and start taking over the world? Well, uh, approximately 30-ish years ago, there was like a power vacuum because uh, the previous campaigns, uh, characters were all either missing or dead because uh, some of them where, you know, it would be their character's natural lifespan ending around that time. So characters are gone or like preoccupied in the example of the druid, he's busy. Uh, the couple of other uh, stronger NPCs that I had did go missing at some point because of one reason or another that I can't reveal it. Uh, so there was a power vacuum, and these uh, Archons were already planning uh, this kind of stuff like 50 to 60 years ago. They were because these things take uh, time and preparation, so they were slowly gathering followers, slowly gathering their artifacts. And at the beginning, their cause was hey, humanity is destroying the nature because all those like wars and events and previous uh, apocalypses that happens is damaging the nature in a great way. So their first argument was, hey, humanity is destroying nature. We got to protect it. And they started to devolve into a cult at some point. And like 25-ish years ago, they just pulled the trigger. So the eco-terrorists, basically? Yes, uh, they, start, they started as eco-activists then became eco-terrorists, and currently they're just terrorists. Yeah, because what they're doing is uh, far more harmful to nature than anything ever happened, because the continent I mentioned in the East that housed the older uh, world tree is currently completely on fire, which isn't really good for nature, I would assume. Uh, yeah, pro probably not. Probably not. Speaking as a you know environmental science person, that I did work with environmental science, it's not really good when one of your contents is completely on fire. 
No, no, that, that does not sound very good. I had a character in one of my campaigns that had a similar, like, wanting to save the environment, but also, like, going about it the wrong way, where he was uh, devoted to the natural world, and dragons were part of that, so he wanted to just do whatever dragons wanted to do, but they were, like, really destructive and evil, so he ended up damaging the world because he was supporting the dragons. Oh, yeah. Um, Sky Zealot 3. I've been noticing, like, lately, because I've been reviewing my notes uh, for this <laughs> interview, looking at stuff that I missed or not. I'm not, like, uh, I'm a history nerd. I'm a fantasy nerd. I like lore. I like writing lore. Mm-hmm. That's why, like, the amount of lore I have for the background of the world, like history, I do have currently in my hand the timeline starting from uh, 14,000 before, you know, the zero. And it <laughs> goes up to current dates, which is 952. I have the timeline, the events, the important people that were there. So, like, it's mostly history based, really, my uh, setting. Like, stuff that happens it had impacts on the world and it's currently still being felt and the players are uh, struggling with those most of the time that's pretty neat i love timelines like that um i you know i have my own for my campaign so it's it's always nice to be able to reference a historical event and like actually have it written down that it it happened instead of having to like Uh, because fabricate it Uh, because also my players are a little picky about that when i talk about historical events they got used to me giving exact dates and exactly what happened and now if i don't do that they become suspicious <laughs> like what is he planning is he gonna murder us i can't even take notes uh, during the sessions because they uh or i can't even doodle on my papers like while they're doing role play i'm listening what my hands needs need to be busy with something because like I have ADHD. So uh, while I'm doodling on the paper, absent violently, they start <clears throat> going like bonkers saying, she's taking notes, something is gonna happen. Uh, what did we miss? I'm just, I'm just a mentally ill man. Please be easy on me. <laughs> when I was uh, learning to play, what the DM did sometimes was he would ask us, oh, what's your perception? And then he would roll behind the DM screen and then just say, hmm, interesting. Well, I do that too. Like, uh, the thing I did with uh, one of my players who is still playing with me was, hey, what's the maximum HP of your animal companion? Just for no reason. <laughs> yeah, I, I like being evil too sometimes, so their worries are not completely unwarranted. Uh, now that I've switched to playing Virtually, it's a bit harder to do that kind of joking with your players, but it's definitely fun. Uh, we always had to play virtually because we started doing COVID, and uh, my players are all over the world. Let's say one of them is in Europe. I'm in Turkey, in Istanbul. Two of them is two of them are in another city. One of them was in Russia at some point. Yeah, so we always had to play virtually. We use Roll Twenty for that and Discord, uh-huh. but we, uh, as much as we can, uh, turn on our webcams so we can see each other's mm-hmm. face because that really helps with role play, like mimicking and- Oh, definitely, uh, yeah. The state of your face, like when you're reacting, blah, 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 you know, so also that. Now I wanna do that for, for my group too, but it's got too much bandwidth issues for some of the people in the group. Yeah, understandable. We have to do without the, the video. So for the Archons, you mentioned that they'd sort of there'd been all these people that had evacuated from where they were living because yes. of the the fire and the the floods and yes, all correct. that. Uh, what's that like in the the places they're going where there's all these like new um, refugees that are showing up? Uh, yeah, well, uh, in the current continent, like Ale, and I'll uh, continue from that. Uh, the population was approximately like it wasn't that crowded. There were uh, empty spaces before 
evacuation. Uh, currently, the for example, this city state of Kaltarin, it has like giant 10 meter tall walls around the city for security reasons. And the entire population was able to fit into the walls, but now there's like a mile long uh, extended settlement around the walls for the refugees. Uh, one of the smaller towns had to be upgraded into a actual large city to be able to house people. And uh, wow. through like public funding, they created a refugee settlement, which is uh, currently around like large city, small metropolis. Because like more than half of the current world's population has to live here. Because the rest of the world is uninhabitable at the moment. So our population is currently being a problem. Uh, our population, like a shortage of food and resources. People within the city don't notice that because, you know, they have been living comfortably and they are continuing to live in comfortably. But people outside in the refugee camps and uh, the temporary settlements that turned into a large city, they are having problems. And still there are people coming in because the city in the side continent fell really recently. People are still evacuating that city. Uh, definitely sounds like unsustainable for the number of people. Yeah, it is. So are you bringing that as like a challenge for the players to solve? Or is it yes. just... Uh, well, actually... Uh, they're facing a similar-ish problem. One of my players' uh, backstory is that he was sold off as a slave with his entire tribe. So they're tr currently trying to find a place for the tribe to live, like comfortably live, flourish, not worry about resources and food and stuff. That's uh -huh. one of the challenges they're currently facing. Um. Yeah, why not? Uh, so you mentioned Kelterrain uh, a few times. Do you want to describe that uh, city a bit um, more right. detail? Uh, it's it's actually a city-state, a kingdom founded in the year zero. Actually, the, the current calendar starts with the founding of Kelterrain. Uh, it's a like big walled-off, circular-ish city divided into five parts. And you said it's year 952 now? Yes, Is that it's right? currently 952. Okay. So the, it's about a thousand years. Yeah, it's about a thousand years old uh, city. Well, it got renovations done multiple times. It got, you know, oh, yeah. at some point it got burnt down completely. At some point it got destroyed multiple times. So even though like the ancient parts, for example, there's a giant underground uh, complex behind and below the main castle. That's a couple thousand years old, even before the kingdom was founded. But the walls and the city is no older than 100. Uh, it uh, got uh, destroyed and rebuilt multiple times uh, during its history. It it's uh, divided into like five parts. Four of those parts is equal. The fifth part is the largest, where most of the population is, like the trade hub and the population center of the city. Uh, the city is being governed by. It's, well, people say that it's governed by the king, but it's mostly the royal council of nobles, let's say, that have the control. What they say is the law currently. The king is more of a puppet, unfortunately. Oh, sorry, the king is what? A uh, puppet, like being controlled by the uh, rich, powerful uh, council members. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was a proper king at, like, before. Actually, the king of Kelterin was one of the members of that strong adventure party that I mentioned in my previous campaign. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, the king, the king's brother, the twin brother, actually, they were part of that uh, adventuring party. Well, they disappeared uh, and the king didn't have an, 
heir, like no son or daughter to speak of. So they had to go back on the family tree and find one of the side families that branched off of the royal family to take over. And they haven't been doing a good job, let's say, for the past uh, 50-ish years. Yeah, that's neat. I, um, I've been doing little nods to that in my campaign to, that I'm doing now to previous ones that I've had. Yeah, that's definitely yeah. nice to be able to do that. Yeah. Like, and, but not all the council members are evils. Most of them are. Uh, because they're uh, mostly money-motivated. And because now there's like a resource uh, shortage because of all those people, uh, they don't right. they don't really want to give up on their com comfort to you know accommodate all these people. Not all of them, of course. Like there are a couple good people there that are trying to uh, take the wheel and direct the population to a better state. But you know they're the minority, unfortunately. And my players managed to like spot that good individual in the council and are currently working for them, trying to uh, make good, like uh, untangle the conspiracies, let's say, set by other members. Who decides who's a member on the council? Is it the the king or someone else? Uh, at at first the the hero king that I mentioned before, uh, when he was forming the council, because he was outside really often, like running to one side of the world to, you know, uh, stop a war, save people, be, be an adventurer, because even though he has obligations as a king, the soul of an adventurer, you have to go and see new places. Uh, so he did form, well, Of course. Yeah. So he was being a little irresponsible, let's say. Uh, so he did form the royal council and placed like people that he trusts that would run the uh, country proper on the council. But slowly over time after he was gone, one of the members got off, a rich and powerful person got in. One of them got off, a rich powerful person got in. And for the last 10 years, it has been uh, more like a aristocracy rather than a council like uh, powerful noble families uh, one member is on the council when they get off another member from the same family gets in so uh, okay. uh, the there's one member left from the original council I wouldn't say one member uh, there was a member of the original council that got off and this uh, younger sister get got in the, to the council and she is still there uh, she got in when she was 30. She's now pushing 90. She's still rocking there. Oh, did she get in one year during the first campaign? Or was that not quite loud? Uh, she was there in the first campaign. Like, my players did actually meet her in the first campaign. She was in her early 20s around that time. After the first campaign ended, the Royal Council was founded. It was after the campaign ended. Uh... Her brother was in the council. He left. She got in. She's been still. She's still in the council, and she's actually one of those people who are trying to, you know, steer it in the right direction. But she's got an old like. You have. She's trying, but she's just a human. You know, ninety is already too much for a human. I'll find out what that's like eventually. Hopefully. So you, you mentioned that your players are trying to set up some sort of mafia organization now. Uh, yeah. Is that a goal that you gave them, or did they just decide that on their own? How did that work? Well, uh, it sounds that funny. In the previous city, it's, this, this city is called Palteapolis, by the way, the, on the other continent. There isn't much left of the city because it got ravaged by the air elementals, specifically an elder tempest, like the big CR-21. Uh, while they were there, uh, they were going through like the not-so-safe part of the city. They were going through the main road, but the main road was blocked. I intentionally did that, so they would choose the back streets. They got hit by bandits. 
instead of you know disposing of the bandits and moving on, they just tied them up, convinced them to join them, and they sort of formed a semi-criminal organization there. They started taking like local jobs, helping people like secure running security and doing odd jobs and so on and so forth. And now they're trying to uh, create a branch in Kelterine, uh, paying uh, the correct people to present them, uh, trying to get into politics. That was not my intention at the beginning of the campaign, honestly. Like I was planning on running more espionage and more high fantasy and adventure and like big stakes and at I believe it was in second session or third. They went, hey, let's let's become the Yakuza of the city. And they have been running the Yakuza of the city ever since. Cool. Are they having are they having fun with it? Yeah, absolutely. They're having so much fun. That's why I haven't stopped them. Like this wasn't my intention. I had no plans about it. I had to make it on the spot on that session and i have been doing research like how does mafia work uh so i can you know <laughs> i actually had to do some research what a great google search history yes. i uh if like government officials were to look at my search history i would be arrested on the spot uh <laughs> yeah i feel like there's a lot of stuff like that for dnt yes with no context, it just looks uh, wrong. So I had to research like mafia and like government. How does it work? Like how does you know paying for stuff you want to be happened work? I forget the term in English. My apologies. Bribe, yes, that's it. How does ah, how does okay, bribing yes. work? And yeah, I've been running a side mafia campaign during my overall campaign uh it has been fun for me uh surprisingly i didn't think i would like it because i don't really like that mafia yakuza aesthetic uh personally but it has been fun they're having so much fun though that was my initial uh, inspiration point they're having so much fun i gotta try you know giving them a little more material to work with and now here we are there uh, creating a side branch in another continent for their uh, mafia business. And like uh, their planning is they do their uh, like plans hidden from me. I heard from one of my players that they have been compiling a document on what to do to create this side business, like legal mambo jumbo. Like applying to the government for business, finding a place for headquarters, uh, researching about the socio-economical state of the city and whatnot. They have like a two to three page document on that. I'm just oh, waiting. Uh, we're going to have our next session next uh, Saturday. We had to cancel this week because some of my players had exams. Uh, I am uh, excitedly waiting what they're going to come up with. Oh, that sounds really neat. Yes, I learned how mafia works. So all sorts of weird stuff you learn just because you wanna you wanna run that kind of thing. Yes. One of the weirdest ones I learned was like about how different worms work because I wanted to have like a a worm creature, but like one that was based off of actual predatory worms. Oh, that's interesting. I I looked up like a bunch of different of like earthworms and other ones and found some that like, like you know how worms like you can cut them in half and they kind of still both survive yeah yeah so that was the the mechanic it had is like when it died it actually just split in half and then you had to fight two of them yeah uh that part of dnd is actually what i have fun with uh like the real world real world knowledge being applied to dnd one example would be the spell heat metal my players love that because boiling a person alive is fun for uh, players i guess yeah why not 
they always find like a hyper specific application of the spell. Like, what if I uh, heat meddled this specific thing on the person? What would happen? And I'm a chemical engineer. I can just stop there and calculate what happens. Like the heat transmission, when the metal is going to melt, and how much of the heat is going to be felt through that armor. I did. Like, I don't exactly remember what uh, my one of the camp smaller campaigns that I ran. One player tried to do heat metal on the golden uh, tooth of a person. I had to stop and do calculations uh, to understand what would happen if a person's teeth uh, fell off, like melted off in their mouth. <laughs> just their teeth. Yeah, it's just golden teeth uh, being melted. Yeah. Horrifying. Ah, oh, man. I don't even know how you would look that up. No, I, I didn't look that up. I just looked at uh, the specific heat points of gold and did that uh, went from there. Okay. Guess your your engineering background is coming in handy. Yeah, yes. You wouldn't expect to calculate uh, what would happen when a person's gold teeth melts off, but here we are. Well, yeah, I I didn't know you needed to know that, but now I I know that I should learn that in case my players do it. Yeah. Uh, whatever you prepare in DND, your players always will throw a curveball at you. Like they will always do the unexpected. Is there anything else that you want to talk about for your campaign world? Oh boy, there's a lot of stuff to talk about, but I'm trying to pinpoint more like isolated and interesting points. I can and trying to find something that wouldn't uh, spoil because my players will be listening to this. Yes, yes, that is. A... Actually, I can talk about like the history, like the major history, like timeline thingy. Like, yeah. And how uh, the world evolved into the current, current state. Well, uh, it starts around a question mark before cataclysm. The year zero is called the cataclysm, even though it's not the only one. Uh, the year question mark is, you know, the creation myth of the world. When it's created, when the first people got in and the gods and whatnot. Uh, there was a primary, the first calamity that destroyed the first civilization. You know, the stereotypical, the first people that are extremely advanced in technology and magic and spirituality, they went down. Uh, they did last a lot, though, like a couple thousand years at least, but uh, an outside force, let's say, uh, and I'll leave it at that. Uh, force them to, you know, self-destruct at some point. And then the history starts moving on and other civilizations are founded. Uh, the name of the world is given at, actually, at the second uh, event, Zierna. Uh, there was a civilization of highly technologically and magically advanced people called the Ziarat uh, soci society, kingdom, majocracy, I would say. Mm -hmm. uh, the inspiration okay. I got for these people are the Nethris from uh, Forgotten Realms and the other uh, ancient technologically advanced civilizations from other works of uh, fiction and fantasy. Uh, these are the people uh, they like my players know the most because in the previous campaign they were a plot point. Uh, the ruins that they left are still around. Actually, one of the ruins is marked on my map that I'm going to send to you when I find it. Uh, this civilization was, you know, the floating cities, the High Arcana, the Archmages. And uh, it's actually a classic story of uh, humanity destroying itself in its hubris. You know, going through, going about the limits and what you should do. And not asking, asking if you can, and not asking if you should. 
and uh, actually leaving uh, permanent scars on the world, uh, destroying like a couple of fundamental forces of the universe. For example, uh, in my setting before this event, there was a divine veil, let's say, that interfered between the mortals and the divine during the fall of this empire because uh, the event was so large. They tried to create some sort of uh, artificial divine entity through arcane means. And uh, upon this creation, like the creation is smart, it's, it's a small god. Uh, it knew that it was being uh, experimented on, it was being used, so it tried to break free. And during those events, uh, they accidentally shattered the divine veil, which, you know, started the age of gods where the gods were able to come down and just chill with the mortals which slowly evolved into uh, gods realizing that they don't really like each other that much before they were interacting uh. before the veil was broken they weren't interacting with each other that much because like yeah you're over there i'm over here let's don't interact but when they got down to the mortal realm they started to realize you're you're all bad people. You're all assholes. You don't really like you. Could you go away, please? Which you know started the uh, divide between the gods, which is when the seven gods uh, separated the virtues and the sinners. Is when around uh, this time, and they started, of course, bickering and gathering followers. Uh, which are really reminiscent of cults, even though they're gods. They start well, picking that, sides, yeah. they start working against each other, and because they're gods doing this on the mortal realm, it doesn't really go do good for the mortals, which caused the other apocalypse, the year zero, let's say. Uh, at, at that point, they realized that their existence cannot be sustained on this planet, and they rebuilt the uh, veils, sealed themselves away, and left the mortals to do their own thing. And they have been doing their own thing since, like, approximately for a thousand years. With some good, with some bad, like, you know, bringing the elemental apocalypse is a thing, scaring off the dragons so there are no dragons anymore is a thing, whatnot, yeah. It doesn't matter if uh, there are gods or not. Uh, humanity will find a way to f shit up, uh, to put it lightly. <laughs> That's actually like the overall theme of my setting. Humans will find some way to make things bad. There are the consequences for the future. Uh, yeah, I like I like themes like that. Like more of a like moral lesson that. Yeah, it doesn't have to be like a campaign setting. It could be just for a campaign or an a an adventure scenario that you come up with. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, mistakes of the past coming to haunt you in the future, coming to haunt other people in the future, more specifically. Then you fix the mistakes of the past and you make your own, so it haunts the people of your future. It's like an endless cycle of uh, fixing and breaking. Well, cool. Um, is there anything else you wanted to talk about for your, not your campaign world necessarily, but your, like the campaign plot you have going on with your players? Oh, the current plot. Yes, I can say a couple things. Well, the first and foremost thing they're dealing with is the elemental archons. Uh, because, uh, two of my, currently I only have three players, like a small party. Uh, two of those uh, three PCs are from the city that fell really recently, so one of their uh, mid-range goals is going there and liberating it from the Air Archon. Uh, the other player has problems with the Fire Archon, so he's going to be dealing with that. Other than, you know, the local powers, they've also been uh, discovering uh, non defeat non-god uh, higher powers that come from long, long past 
and have been sleeping inside the planet, let's say, without giving so much spoilers. They've been dealing with those, like, discovering stuff that have been long lost, even, even to the, like, coveted scholars of the Ziarat, the majocracy. And uh, have been discovering stuff about themselves, like how they're connected to the past and how uh, they're actually, you know, destined to shape the future, let's say, uh, being really uh, cheesy. <laughs> and they have been looking at the moon a lot. Like, they really like the moons, let's say, plural, there too. Oh, okay. What do you do for a calendar in your campaign? Do you have, like, I have my own. Just... Uh, it's a 10 month calendar with 360 days. So, 336 days per month, approximately. Some have more, some have less. Uh, I, of course, as a nerd, charted this uh, cycle of the moon on that calendar. So, it does show which state which moon is going to be in in specific dates. Uh, of course, I, you know, like I mentioned, the year is 952. So the timeline is based on that. The months are actually named after the gods, like the seven virtues and the three keepers, so 10 months. Of course, the mm -hmm. symbols don't get representation, which makes them angry more than they already are. Days actually, I still use Sunday, Monday, regular days. I I didn't have the name. I didn't name the days because that would cause a lot of confusion than I already caused. Because they're still trying to, uh, even though it has been like three years that we have been playing in the setting, they're still trying to get used to uh, the months being different. Yeah, you want to balance like immersion with a realistic ability to yes, yes, to so. play the game. Yeah, so uh, the days are 24 hours. The time zones are like relatively simple. The climate is usually represented on the map. Like the current place they're in is, like I said, middle European-esque. The more northern they go, the more Nordic it becomes to the point where after a while they pass the uh, northern circle and go to the pole, which is completely iced, let's say. So geography is actually pretty simple too. I never th uh, thought about tectonics, like uh, the continental plates or some stuff that's a little above me. So if my the placement of my continents doesn't make sense, it uh, uh, happens. Well, I, I mean, you can always yeah, just yeah. say it, it's it's, magic. Yes, and I can always say it's explanation. It's, I can always say that it's man-made or artificial. It helps with immersion for the players if you have an explanation for that. Um, that's a real-world explanation because then they can have more of an expectation that's in line with their own experience. Yeah, having set rules for your world is always easier both you and your players. While setting the rules, it can be hard because you have to do extra research and you have to think about everything that has happened to that point and will happen after that point. But after you manage the rules of your world, it actually becomes easier because your players have, will have set expectations depending on the rules. And when something unexpected happens, you can just refer to the rules and say, hey, according to these rules, this should have happened here. So that's what happens kind of, you know, having like, more like guidelines, actually, because sometimes you have to break those rules to tell your story. Yeah, but it um, yeah, lets the players be more grounded and not feel like stuff is just happening. Yes, and that correct. they don't have an influence on the story because that like you play out that they they could do the same thing if they wanted to or something like that. I'm not I'm not quite sure how to how to phrase it. Yeah, it's important to have that understanding of what's possible. Yeah, anything else you want to talk about? 
actually I think I'm like without getting into too much detail because if I were to talk about some things we will be here for another hour uh, <laughs> yeah without going into too much detail no actually I think I mentioned the outlying details of my setting okay um, do you have any advice you want to give to other DMs uh, in in story writing actually I would say don't be afraid of uh, taking inspiration from other works like the in the first episode you talked about Tolkien if you're taking inspiration from Tolkien that's great that's actually a really good set of work don't be afraid of taking inspiration from other things because you're not a professional writer you're doing this as a hobby you can just take parts that you like from other stories and make your story a mishmash of uh, patchwork and other content. Just if you're afraid of being a copycat and copying from other people, don't, don't worry about it. It's just uh, you and a couple of friends sitting around the table and uh, pretending that uh, you are a uh, hero and rolling some plastic rocks. <laughs> yeah. I think some people worry about um, sort of getting caught doing that. Um, and my experience is that uh, typically that won't happen unless you're copying something that is very recent in pop culture that your players would also be paying attention to. Yeah, yeah. And like, so like if you're uh, afraid of your players discovering, change a couple of names, uh, switch a couple of things around. Oh yeah, you always want to do a little bit of changing. Yeah, of so course. It's like, uh, like the theme for your campaign. Yeah, of course, and uh, not to do, you know, being an exact copycat. Like if you did something that was a copy of like the Lord of the Rings, like the Ring of Power series that just came out. Like that feels a little too recent, and yeah, it's a little risky. Like, yeah, some other people might be watching it, but you could do something that's a copy of, like the Lord of the Rings, their their trip through the mines of Moria, um, and that's not necessarily something that's in recent memory for people, yeah. so you're not going to get caught doing it. Like, uh, even though it's still, yeah, it's a good adventure that you can. I'm do. gonna put myself in front of the fire. With this, but the inspiration I got from those four elemental archons was from Final Fantasy IV, to be specific. Oh, okay. Yeah, because uh, there are like uh, elemental demons in that game. So when I was playing around in Final Fantasy IV, hey, this looks cool. I'm going to take it. And that's how I came up with that elemental chaos uh, storyline. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, nothing wrong with taking from Final yeah. Fantasy. They have some very good plots. Yes. And my players didn't play Final Fantasy games, so I'm good on that end. Well, all right. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Unaz. It was really nice having you here. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure.